You can turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back, and we'll show verses on the screen here. We're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis as we do. I want to mention a recommended resource for you. I emailed the members a couple links to recommendations, and I think I got the links wrong or the recommendations wrong. I'd asked Joshua for two recommendations, or one. He gave me two, which is great. And one of them is this book, The City of God and the Goal of Creation. This would be a great study, a great book to read that would dovetail with what we're seeing in the book of Genesis. The City of God and the Goal of Creation by Desmond Alexander. It will help you put your Bible together, help you see the the big picture of your Bible. So go on your phone right now, ignore me for a little bit, and order on Amazon, okay? The City of God, Desmond Alexander. If you only read the introduction, you will get a a better understanding of what I'm going to talk about today, and lots of stuff I wish I had time to talk about, but I don't. City of God, Desmond Alexander. Let us read from God's holy word in Genesis 2. I'll begin reading in verse 4. God's word says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The river of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, we'll pick up with the rest of this narrative in a couple of weeks. First, let's ask for God's help. Fathers, we open your word And we come to this book to know you better and to know ourselves better. We pray you would accomplish those things by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit of God, we ask you to fill us. We ask you to open our eyes again. 
to behold wondrous things. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow morning, you will get up and you will do stuff. You might design buildings or provide insurance. You might drive a truck or swing a hammer or provide security or do someone's taxes or study in a classroom. Or you might make meals for your children or do the laundry or clean your home. Either way, tomorrow morning and maybe this afternoon, you will do something that can best be described with a four-letter word. Work. Whether you get paid for it or not, whether it's in the home, outside the home, or in the classroom, we all do something called work. The question is why? Why work? Why do you work? Some of us might say, I work so I can earn money. It's the bumper sticker. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I earn, I, pay, I work to pay the bills, earn money, pay the bills, buy stuff. That's my why. And income. Or you might say, I work just because work is a, a necessary evil in life. It's the thank God it's Friday mentality. It's I can't wait till I retire mentality. You hear the word work and you think instantly drudgery because you don't know there's a why. You have no why. Or, or your work is merely a means to other ends. I study because I have to pass this class. And I have to pass this class to fulfill my gen ed requirements. I have to fulfill my gen ed requirements to get a degree. I have to get a degree because, 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 because. You work merely as a means to some other end. That's your why. But Genesis chapter 2 takes us back to God's original blueprints, you might say. Genesis chapter 2 shows us a why. Or actually, more than one. In fact, I think here you're going to see that to work rightly, you must know why you work. That's kind of my main idea. To work rightly, you, you must know why. You must understand these original blueprints and understand purpose for your work. And I want to see with you three. Three Three grand, God-centered, encouraging purposes for work. Here's purpose number one. Purpose number one, we work to reflect God. First reason, we work to reflect the living God. Here's the picture of Genesis 2. There's an arid land. But in the midst of it, an, an oasis of some sort, a, a mist or spring is watering the ground. But there's a problem in verse 5. Do you see the problem? There was no man to work the ground. This land has great potential, but there's no one to develop it and steward it. So, so sovereignly and, and intimately, 
God forms the first man, Adam, and breathes life into him. And the man became a a living creature. And God places this man in a garden where he causes all kinds of good stuff to start springing up. All of it is, is good to look at and good to eat. Trees come up with red, delicious apples and other trees with this big, juicy pear hanging off it. They're so ripe, they're just barely hanging on. It's paradise. It's a a perfect world. And in this perfect world, the man is given a particular task in verse 15. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. To work it and keep it. So in this perfect world, God creates man in part to work. Now that's very significant. That means work is not a result of the fall of man into sin. If you've been thinking, my work is because of sin. No, Genesis says work is not a result of sin. Work is kind of in our DNA as humans, you might say. Work is part of our design. We are made in part to be workers. But why? Well, look up to the beginning of this chapter. Chapter 2, verse 2. I think you get a hint. Chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, after all God had done in chapter 1, on the seventh day, God finished his, his work. His work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set it apart, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So three times in two verses, God's work is referenced. And here's the interesting thing. The word God uses here for his work is the same word he uses to describe Your work. Think about that. God has just formed the sky, the oceans, the dry land. He just filled them all with every kind of fish and bird and reptile and animal. It's amazing, powerful, life-giving activity that God calls his work. And then he says, that's the kind of thing you do tomorrow morning. Do you see what this means? It means we work in part to reflect the worker, God himself. We work to reflect the God who works. And that that just makes sense because as Joshua showed us last week, we are made as image bearers of God. We are, we are God's estate managers. We are called to rule over creation on his behalf. I don't know if you tracked the royal wedding yesterday of Harry and Meghan, but I saw that after, after the wedding, the queen apparently bestowed on them new royal titles. They are now Duke and Duchess of Sussex, wherever that is. Being in the image of God is like having a royal title bestowed on you. You are 
vice-regent of the king of the universe, called to rule in his place and represent him. And one way you represent him in your royal calling is by work. By reflecting the God who works. And you do this, you do this not as, as a beaver who builds his dam but doesn't know why. Just does it. It's the thing we do. No, you work as a thinking, planning, morally conscious image bearer of God. Let that, let that land on you for a moment. This means that work is one of the most godlike things you do. And it's vital you see that. Business Insider magazine published an article about Marcus Pearson, creator of the video game Minecraft. Now, I don't know about you, but Minecraft's been pretty big in my house. Right, so hopefully I got some of the uh, young people's attention just now. Right? I know you were paying attention earlier. But Minecraft is beloved. Minecraft in some Homes, some people, is huge. And so Pearson sold his company for $2.5 billion with a B, making him one of the most rich entrepreneurs of our day. After he sold his company, he bought a mansion for $70 million. I hope it was pretty nice for $70 million. He spent his days in lavish parties, and expensive vacations, hanging out with celebrities. He's living the dream now. No more work. Wish I was that guy, right? And then he posted the following on his Twitter page. Quote, The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. See, work became just about making money and cashing out. And then life for him lost a lot of purpose. I've run out of reasons to keep trying. I've run out of purpose. When all along, he was made, in part, to work that he might reflect the God who made him. Now, we reflect God in other ways as well. When you tell the truth, when you show love and compassion, when you pursue justice, you are reflecting God as an image bearer. But in the context of Genesis 2, in this particular passage, work is here a central way we reflect God's image. So, so when we start to think, I hate my work, I hate my school. I can't wait to quit. I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to get this over with. I wish... Sorry. <laughs> Scared me. Boy, I got to not do that. Startled me. <laughs> Too much caffeine. 
I wish I didn't have to work. Be careful when you start to think that way. Be careful. Because you're starting to deny a reason for which you were made. Your work has dignity because you reflect the God who works. Now, what does this look like practically? Again, we got a hint last week. Just remind you, in chapter 1, God creates us as image bearers, as these royal vice-regents ruling over his creation in his stead, and he calls us to, quote, subdue the earth and have dominion. Subdue the earth and have dominion. A pastor friend of mine sums this up as a call to shape your world. Shape your world. As you work, as you subdue, have dominion, as you shape your world, you are reflecting the God who created the world. You see, you think you're just doing laundry, but you're shaping your world. You're pushing back disorder and chaos in your world and reclaiming a little bit of order, even if only temporarily, (laughs) to reflect the God of order. You think, I just wait tables at a restaurant. But you're shaping your world. You're helping people enjoy gifts of food and relationship and so reflect the God who gave the gifts of food and relationship. You think, ah, I'm just a receptionist. But you shape your world. You show hospitality to friends and strangers on a daily basis and so reflect the kindness and hospitality of God. You think, I'm only programming computers, but you're shaping your world. You're helping other people be productive through the use of technology and so reflecting the God who enables us to be Productive. The question you must ask is, in my work and through my work, how am I shaping my world? In your work, please ask, how are you shaping your world? Because you are. And when you realize how, you'll realize your work is not mundane and it's not insignificant. You're reflecting God himself. Purpose number two, we work to serve unto God. We work to reflect God, and we work to serve unto God. I I don't mean by that that God needs us to serve him. God doesn't need anything from us. I mean that our work is a form of service unto God. You might say an expression of worship. You see, Moses, the inspired author here, he tells his readers that man is created to do his work in this perfect place called called Eden. Adam is put into Eden, this perfect place of God's very presence. Notice, Notice verse 10. Verse 10, a river, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. It's helpful to know that the biblical writers will use Imagery like this of, of a river to refer to life, the life-giving presence of God. 
You might think of Psalm 46. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's metaphorical use of this sense of God's presence. You could look later on at Revelation 22 and see the river of life, in fact. Or verse 11 here. Verse 11 describes the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And verse 12 says, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The next time the Israelites use gold and onyx, it's to adorn their high priests and build their tabernacle for worship. See, the first audience of Genesis would have heard in this description of Eden a sense of God's presence and a sense of God's worship. They would have realized, I trust, as they read the entire Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, they would have recognized Eden as a garden temple. A garden temple. And they would have been struck by what Adam is called to do in this garden temple. Look back to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden temple of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, the next time Moses will use those two verbs, work and keep together, he is describing the work of a particular people. Do you know who? The priests. Think about that. God describes Adam's work in exactly the same way he will describe priestly work. That means Adam is not just a gardener. That means there's a very real vertical dimension to his gardening task. Alan Ross puts this well. I think we have this quote from Alan Ross. Whatever activity the man was to engage in, in the garden, it was described in terms of spiritual service, spiritual service of the Lord. Here's my question for you. Do you think of your work like that? Do you think of your work as a form of spiritual service of the Lord? And and if not, why not? Whether you're paid or unpaid for that work, whether it's in the home, outside the home, or in the classroom, your work is a form of spiritual service of the Lord. See, for believers in Jesus Christ, the most common lie we believe about work is this, that if it's not full-time Christian ministry, then it's not spiritual service of the Lord. And friends, that's a sub-biblical view of work and an unhelpful lie. God, God makes no sacred, secular distinction in our lives. He says of the entirety of our lives, whatever you do, it's worship. It's to be done unto me, including your work. Now that doesn't mean I am so sorry. I don't know why I'm doing that or how I'm doing that. (laughs) Doesn't mean you worship your work. Doesn't mean work is to be an object of worship. It's important to take a Sabbath 
rest, a day off. It's important to have recreation, which recreates you. It's not about finding your identity primarily in your work. You know, what I do is who I am. No, this is about finding your identity in God as his image bearer, as you work unto him. Just, just remember, keep in mind the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Okay? That sets the context for the whole thing. This God-centered, God-defined worldview in which work sets, uh, takes its place. In the beginning, God. Put your work under that. We don't worship our work, but we do work unto God vertically. There is service unto God, and as there is service unto God, listen, God uses that as service to other people. As you work vertically unto God, there is a horizontal effect that God accomplishes for the common good. In the 16th century, the reformer Martin Luther he called our work a mask of God. A mask of God. He said, God milks the cows by the hand of the milkmaid. He says, others see a menial worker, just some gal milking a cow. But behind her face, it's God's face providing milk. To people. It's a mask for God. God provides our daily bread by means of the farmer, the baker, the delivery truck driver, and the Costco checkout clerk. Would you like boxes with that? No, thank you. I don't want your boxes. God protects us by means of police officers, firemen, military personnel, campus security. God creates beauty for us to enjoy through artists and musicians. God heals our bodies through doctors and nurses and other medical personnel. My daughter Abigail is a math tutor. She's employed as a math tutor at Grossmont Community College. She gave me permission to share this. It's not always a thrilling job for her, being a math tutor. But she's a mask of God as a math tutor. God is using her service unto him to serve others, to help them learn to live in his world by learning math. It's a mask of God. What about for your work? What is God doing through your work? What is God doing for the common good? He's doing something. It's service unto him vertically, used by God horizontally in service to others. So, so catch this. I hope you're getting this. There's a, a bigger picture when it comes to work. You need the, need the wide-angle lens tomorrow morning to think Vertically and, and horizontally. It's spiritual service to my king. I'm reflecting him. And somehow he's using that for the common good for others. That will transform tomorrow morning for you. There's a third purpose we need to see, or at least draw. Thirdly, we work 
to rely on God. We work to rely on God. I acknowledge this is an inference. It's really an application. But I think you'll see where I'm going. So track with me. Your work is also to be a context in which you can glorify God by relying on God. See, I realize at this point you might be tempted to think, Tab, you don't know my work. You don't know what it's like to have my boss or clean my house or take my classes. It's hard. It's frustrating. It wears me out. And, and I don't doubt that. Because Genesis 3 explains your experience. In chapter 3, the first man sins. And that changes everything, including your work. God said to Adam, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God said to Adam, quote, Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. Note that word. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Goes on. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Two things are now introduced to work. Toil and futility. Work is now hard. There's pain by the sweat of your brow. You work and there's futility. Thorns and thistles will come up with your crops. Weeds will grow on your lawn. You fill in the blank. Make application to your own life. Work is not a curse. But work now falls under the curse, the just curse of God against sin. In Greek mythology, there's a character named Sisyphus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. King Sisyphus betrayed Zeus. And as his punishment for his trickery, Sisyphus was made to roll a huge boulder up a hill. But Zeus enchanted the boulder to roll away from Sisyphus just before he reached the top of the hill. So he would roll this huge boulder up, 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 all this work. And just as he neared the top, he would lose his grip and the boulder would go back to the bottom and he'd have to start all over again. And Genesis 3 is saying that's a lot like what your work is like now or what it will feel like tomorrow morning. Toil and toil and toil and often not seeing the fulfillment of your task. Sweating, sweating, sweating. And often you just feel frustrated by futility. Now you experience in your work confusion and hopelessness, even injustice. And discontent. Many days, many days you will not, quote, feel fulfilled. And that's normal. Many days you will not feel fulfilled. If you do feel fulfilled, thank God. Many days you may not, and that's to be expected, because pain now mingles with purpose in your work. After college, I was working in the mortgage servicing division of a bank. It's the early 1990s. Some of you remember that time. It was the time of the savings and loan crisis, the SNL crisis. So I am there in my little cubicle, 
working at my terminal. We didn't have PCs. We had terminals for the mainframe. And in walk representatives of the government that were working, we called it for the Resolution Trust Corporation, the RTC, announcing that our bank had been taken over by the government and we were going to lose our jobs. And some of you experienced that. Pain. Mingled with purpose. It's to be expected. We have teachers here who influence classrooms of young people every day, which is huge, I hope you realize, hugely important to have a literate society. But you have unappreciative students. And you're not compensated like a Fortune 500 CEO. There's toil and toil and toil and probably a lot of frustration. There's pain with the purpose. We have ladies here, like my wife, who works primarily at home. At the end of the day, your three-year-old is probably not clapping for you to thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Mom, for serving me so well today. You clean up and you clean up and clean up, and then it just gets messed up and messed up and messed up, and you start all over again. You feel like that guy with the boulder. It never ends. No awards banquets for you. No end-of-year bonus for you. There's a lot of purpose. And there's pain. Or the computer program won't work. You cannot figure it out. There's just some bug in this silly program. The building you build doesn't come out right. doesn't pass inspection. The commute to the office is draining you. The lectures in the classroom are draining you. The studies in private, in the library, are draining you. And you think this has no purpose. No, it has pain mingled with purpose. And when we forget that, we get disappointed, we get disillusioned because we ask work to now deliver things it can't deliver. We must set our expectations correctly here, friends. Don't ask your work to deliver paradise. It can't. But it still has great purpose. So remind yourself tomorrow morning, it's a fallen world. I'm not surprised by futility. I'm not surprised by the toil. I'm not surprised by pain mingled with this God-centered purpose. But there's still good news for that moment. God, the worker, entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He worked as a carpenter. You better believe he knows toil. He knows how to work hard. He knows sweat of the brow kind of toil. He did it in his workshop all the time. But he also had a particular work he came to do, the Father's work to save a people. So he lived a perfect life every day. And then he died the death you and I deserve. He received the just judgment of God as he hung on a cross. And he proclaimed like we sang, it is finished. My saving work is accomplished. And then he rose from the dead 
to show it to be so. And now he says to you and me, come to me. All who are weary. Maybe you feel weary this morning. Or weary about thinking about tomorrow morning. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, heavy laden. And I will give you rest, a particular kind of rest. He says, rest for your soul. The kind of rest we most need. Rest for your soul. Forgiveness of your sins. Reconciliation with God. Adoption as God's beloved child. This is the rest for your soul. He holds out to you and me right now by simply turning to him and believing. Turn from going your own way and trust in that finished work that you can know rest for your soul as you work. That gospel, that good news, that's what gospel means, just means good news. That gospel frees us from slavery to our work. It frees us from worshiping our work. It frees us from finding identity primarily in our work. It means you don't have to live under the pressure of constantly, Monday through Friday, trying to prove your worth to other people. It frees you to work gladly with purpose unto God, reflecting him, serving his purposes. And in the midst of the toil and frustration, it also means you can rely on him for his grace. He lived a perfect life. He toiled, he worked, he completed his work and was without sin. So God's word tells us to draw near in Hebrews 4. Draw near Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. I want to submit to you, in light of Genesis chapter 3, your work is a time of need on a regular basis. Regularly speaking, your work will be a time of need. And in that time of need, you can rely on God and receive mercy and grace to help you. And so you will glorify the worker by working with the power of his grace in your soul. Are you seeing, friend, how to work rightly? We must know why we work Are you seeing the difference? The difference God-given purpose makes for your work. One of my favorite movies is the movie Gettysburg. It is about the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War, as you might imagine. In one scene, it involves Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, a fascinating figure who led the 20th Maine Regiment. In the movie, Chamberlain is brought 120 mutineers, guys who want to desert. I think they're from the 2nd Maine Regiment. These guys were a bit unhappy because many in their regiment had signed up for a three-year enlistment and so just got out. While they had signed up for a duration of the war kind of enlistment, enlistment, and they were pretty upset. They were disgruntled, they were discouraged, and they were 
not going to fight anymore. And maybe that's how you feel right now about your work. You're discouraged, you're disgruntled, and you want to quit. Well, Colonel Chamberlain gathers these guys together and he reminds them of purpose. The purpose for which they were fighting. It's a great scene in the movie. He says, history has men fight for pay, for plunder, for land, for power. But here, he said to these mutineers, here we fight for something different, something that has not happened much in history. Here an army is out to set other men free, he said. He goes on, America should be free ground, not divided by a line separating slave state and free. Here, he says, we judge you, not, uh, we judge you by what you do, not by who your father was. It's the idea, he says, that all men have value. That's what we're fighting for. That's our purpose. And these disgruntled, discouraged soldiers, they fix their gaze on Chamberlain and their countenance begins to change. And all but six rejoin the fight and play a critical role in the upcoming battle. Friend, to work rightly, you must know why. You must know purpose. They had lost sight of their purpose. Maybe you have too. I believe God wants to minister to you as we close. I want to pray for you as we close. I want to pray. I want to pray that you would wake up tomorrow morning with renewed vigor and anticipation and a sense of hope. The yes, work is hard now. Yes, you sweat. Yes, it's often rolling the boulder up the hill to see it roll back down. But you're reflecting God and you're serving unto God as he serves others and you get to rely on him for his powerful grace. So let's pray for that right now with the music team 